It is Easter. It is a happy day because Easter is the answer to all our problems. Whatever troubles you, Easter is the answer. And that's because all our problems really boil down to one problem, that is the problem of death. Death is the ultimate problem. It is the ultimate enemy. It is the ultimate curse. If death cannot be overcome, nothing else matters. If death cannot be overcome, all is lost. If death cannot be overcome, the the whole human story is a tragedy with a very sad ending. Just think about it. The greatest sadness we ever experience in this life is when we lose a loved one, when death takes a loved one from us. The greatest fear we can ever have is the fear of death. Guilt and shame sting us so deeply because they remind us that we deserve death and we are in bondage to death if left to ourselves. All of our anxieties and worries are ultimately just different forms that the fear of death, worry over death, anxiety over death, all these different worries and anxieties we have really trace back to the fear of death ultimately. They're just different forms of the fear of death manifesting itself in our lives. The whole point of the Christian gospel is to deal with death. The gospel is designed to solve and overcome this problem of death, to rescue us from death and all its implications. And in these verses we've read from Hebrews chapter 2, we've got a very tight summary of this great and joyous truth. We're told here that Christ partook of our flesh and blood. He became a sharer in our human nature. This is the truth of the incarnation. He is the Son of God in human form. The eternal word was made flesh. He clothed his deity with humanity and entered into our history. And we can ask why? What's the point? Why did God become man? Well, he became like us. He entered into solidarity with us. He became a brother to us for this very purpose, that through his death, he might destroy the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. And in this way, that is through his death and resurrection, that he might deliver all those who through fear of bondage were subject to, all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. That's the gospel. It sets us free from the devil. It sets us free from his weapon, bondage to the fear of death. That's the Christian story. This is why God became man. Bethlehem leads to Calvary and the empty tomb. Just as Christ comes forth from the womb of Mary in his birth, so he comes forth from the womb of the earth in his resurrection. The point of Christmas is Easter. The point of the incarnation is the crucifixion and resurrection. Christ became one of us so that in his dying and rising, he could deliver us from our greatest enemy, from the last enemy, that is death. Everything Christ came to do is fulfilled in his rising from the dead. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, we don't have to fear death. Death is overcome. Death is a defeated foe. 
Consider how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where really he breaks out in song as he is talking about Christ's resurrection and linking that to our future resurrection. He breaks out in a song of triumph. And he says, Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Paul can trash talk death. Oh, death, where is your sting? He's taunting death. He's mocking death. Martin Luther picked up on this. Luther said Jesus came into the world to break death's teeth, to defang death, to declaw death, to defeat death. And that's why Christians ought to have a kind of holy swagger in the face of death. Death is not so much a mystery to be explained for the Christian, but an enemy to be crushed. And that's what Jesus has done. Death is not the same thing now that it once was. In Christ, death has been transformed from curse to doorway. Death is a defeated foe, so we no longer have to fear death. Death no longer holds us in bondage. Now we know that when we die, we're taken into glory. And we know that death will not have the last word. We await the resurrection of our bodies at the last day. And so death is not now what it once was. Imagine two skydivers. Both jump out of the plane. Both are free-falling. But as it turns out, only one has a parachute. The other does not. Christ is that parachute. If you have Christ, you will land safely on the other side of death. Oh, yes, you'll still undergo death. But death is no longer a curse or a judgment. We're not in bondage to death. We don't live in fear of death. Death is totally defeated for us. So death is radically different from what it once was. The Christian views death and the Christian experiences death in a totally different way. You know, death was undefeated up until Easter. Death had claimed victim after victim after victim from Adam onwards, the whole human race, every generation, every single person. Death claimed one victim after another. Death was unbeaten. No one had ever come forth from the grave with a kind of indestructible resurrection life. And on Good Friday, it looked like death had claimed another victim. Indeed, it looked like death had won its greatest triumph. And it seemed death would have the last word. But on Easter Sunday, early in the morning, Jesus rose from the dead and death was finally defeated once and for all. Death was finally overcome. The grave had been broken. The grave that had, hold, that had held the dead under lock and key. Jesus burst out of that prison of the tomb, that prison of the grave, setting the rest of us free as well. On Easter Sunday, the victim became the victor. The one who died defeated death. A new Adam came forth from the earth. Not only was death overcome in Christ's resurrection, the devil was overcome as well. We also see this in Hebrews chapter 2. Death is defeated, but the devil is as well. And this is because death and the devil go together. The devil's greatest weapon has always been death. And the way Satan controls and manipulates people is through the fear of death. 
Satan catechizes us in fear and anxiety. Satan constantly preaches to us in all different kinds of ways a religion of fear that revolves around death. A religion based not on the fear of God, but on the fear of death. And far too many listen to him preach. They listen to his lies and they live in that fear. Satan holds people in bondage through the fear of death. That's how he exercises his tyranny over us. Because really, when you analyze human life, you find we're always driven by our greatest fears. Fear is a control mechanism. If somebody can get you to fear something, they can control you. They can manipulate you. So what happens when the fear of death reigns? Satan has his way with us. The fear of death is like a leash he can use to drag us around. The only thing that can liberate us from this bondage to death from this fear of death, the only thing that can liberate us from the devil himself is this gospel, the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Without Christ, death is a train, and you are tied to the tracks. But with Christ, death is still a train, but you're standing next to the tracks, and the only thing that can pass over you is the shadow of that train, the shadow of of death. Death can't really hurt you if you are in Christ. Think about how David describes death in that most famous psalm of all, Psalm 23. He says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He says, I won't fear any evil. Of course, the ultimate evil is death. He says, I won't fear death. As I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear the evil of death. But this is what's interesting. That phrase, the valley of the shadow of death. You know, there are a lot of valleys in Scripture, and a lot of times those valleys are connected with or symbolic of terrible things. Joshua spoke of the valley of calamity. Psalm 84 speaks of the valley of weeping. Hosea spoke of the valley of trouble. There are a lot of deep valleys in Scripture. In Psalm 23 we come to the deepest valley of them all, the valley of death, or specifically what he calls the valley of the shadow of death. But that's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? It's as if David is telling us death is like a shadow. So think about this. What does it take to cast a shadow? The only way a shadow can be cast is if there is light shining from behind. Without light, there is no shadow. No shadow can be cast unless there's light shining from behind. And further, the darkest shadows are cast by the brightest lights. If there is a shadow, you know there's light. And of course, we know too that shadows never last. Light always ends up driving them out. And of course, that points to the rest of the psalm. That's David's point, in fact, in the whole psalm. And of course, now we know, now we can say the light behind the shadow of death is the risen Christ. He is the light Shining, And so in the end, the shadow of death will be driven away. It'll be banished. The shadow will be pierced by the light and driven away for good. For the Christian, death is nothing more than a passing shadow, an evil we no longer need to fear, for the risen Lord is with us. 
And he will bring us from the valley to the mountaintop, from the valley of death to the mountaintop of life and beauty and glory. And so as Christians, we simply do not accept death's dominions. We do not live life on death's terms. We do not live in bondage to this fear of death. We don't live with a constant fear of death. We've been set free from such bondage. Death once reigned, but death reigns no more. Fear of death reigns no more. Marilyn Robinson has said, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. We're simply not in the habit of fearing death. Christians are not intimidated by death. You're not going to be intimidated by death when you know resurrection glory is your future. When you know that's your future, that's your destiny, you become fearless even in the face of death. So what if they kill us? So what if we die? We're going to rise again? Death is defeated. Death will not have the last word. Now let me bring all of this to bear on what we've seen happen in the world over the last year. Really, not just the last year, but the last many years, last decades even. Uh, COVID, of course, over the last year has brought many face-to-face with death. We've watched as a tragic death toll has rised with, uh, has risen with death stacked on top of death. It's, it's not so much the case now, but remember for many months you could just watch TV and the death count would just be updated constantly. And so you're just seeing death, encountering death, being confronted with death constantly. And of course thousands and thousands of lives have been taken tragically by the virus. COVID has forced... Americans, in fact, it's forced everyone to face their mortality, to consider death. But I think what COVID has exposed more than anything in our culture, in our country, what COVID has exposed more than anything is that most Americans are not ready to die. They have no answer to death, no answer to suffering. They have no parachute. They have no solid reason for thinking of death as a defeated foe. No light shining behind the shadow. And so they're still in bondage to fear. Now, COVID didn't create this fear of death. Of course, it didn't create this fear of death. But it has exposed this fear of death. And it has exposed the idols we create in order to avoid facing death. Idols that arise from people's Fear of death. This is not just tied to COVID. It's much, much bigger than that. This is going on long before COVID. It's going to continue long after COVID is gone. One idol in particular the crisis has exposed is what I call the idol of safetyism. An obsession with safety and security. How safe is safe enough? And if we can make it just a little bit safer, then let's do it no matter what the cost. Now let me be clear about this. I'm not attacking safety. <laughs> I don't want the application of this sermon for you to, you know, to, to be for you to go out and do all kinds of dangerous things, okay? Uh, especially you teenage men. Uh, don't take it that way. That's, that's, not, that's not exactly the point. But the point is, we can turn safety into an idol. We can turn safety into safetyism. It is wise to take precautions, and it would be foolish not to. Safety and safetyism are two distinct things. I would guess that most, if not all of us, uh, buckled our seatbelts when we got in the car to drive to church today, and that seems like a quite prudent thing to do. 
And same kind of thing with COVID. A virus is on the loose. Uh, certain precautions seem to be very prudent. We've tried to take some of those precautions as a church, all the way from not having services on certain occasions to changing the way we do communion. Uh, of course, we've also stressed again and again that it's up to you to really make decisions for yourself and for your family because everybody's vulnerability level is different. And, and we understand that. I've got no interest in trying to tell everyone else how they should balance taking precautions versus preserving normalcy. That's not my decision to make. It's not my decision to, to, to determine how everybody else makes that trade-off. Uh, we're, we're all, all are making trade-offs all the time. We're making trade-offs between safety and freedom. And it's important to understand that there's always going to be a downside to whatever decision you make. But, but we've said that's your decision to make as an individual or as a family. And it's perfectly legitimate for Christians to see this differently, to come to different conclusions about what is best. I'm not really trying to get into that whole debate. Uh, that, that whole dis that discussion's been had, obviously, a great deal over the last year. It's not my interest here. Uh, I recognize all of that. But what I want you to see is a much bigger, uh, much bigger picture here. Something that was going on in our culture long before COVID arrived on the scene. It's actually a book. It's, it's not authored by a Christian, but I think it's really, really interesting that, that addresses some of the issues here. Jonathan Haidt has written a helpful book called The Coddling of the American Mind that exposes this new culture of safety. Really, I would call it a cult of safety. This cult of safety that has come to dominate American culture, uh, our American way of life. And he, he looks at several different examples of how safetyism has infiltrated our culture and taken over, how we have this obsession with safety. Now, he doesn't say this obsession with safety arises out of a fear of death because we are in bondage. We're held in bondage by the devil to the fear of death. But actually, I think that's part of what he's getting at, part of what he's uncovering. What does it look like when you have a whole society of people who are held in, in the fear of death, in bondage to the fear of death by the devil? What does that look like? Well, you get this obsession with safety. So he gives a lot of different examples of this. One that he gives that I think is really interesting is he points out how you can see this in various parenting practices, particularly what has come to be known as helicopter parenting. Helicopter parenting, where the parents constantly hover over their kids all the time to make sure that their little kids never experience any danger, never have to face any risk, never endure failure or even significant discomfort. It's like they bubble wrap their child's whole existence. These kids are constantly supervised. They always get trophies, whether they win or lose. They are always kept safe. And Haight points out that uh, children who are never allowed to do anything that might result, say, in a scraped knee, or who are never allowed to fail a test, or who never have unsupervised play with other kids where they've got to work things out, work out disagreements and, and settle disputes amongst themselves. Children who are raised in this way in a culture of safetyism are really not ready to become mature, self-governing Adults, And so he actually sees it as a, as a threat to our democratic, republican form of government, even. It's a threat to our very way of life. 
Just as your immune system needs to be exposed to a variety of stressors in order to develop, so it is with our psyches, with our souls. The immune system only learns to fend off threats by being exposed to them. So it is with our souls and with our minds. We cannot grow children into strong and capable adults if we are constantly shielding them from everything that would stretch and challenge them, that would make them uncomfortable, or that would cause them to suffer in some kind of way. Now again, don't get me wrong, nobody's suggesting that we let kids go play unsupervised next to a busy street. That's not the point. That would be foolish. But Hayda's pointed something out about our culture that I think is really true. Parents who out of fear overprotect their children actually hold them back and stunt their development. The obsession with safety actually backfires. Kids who don't get free-range playtime outside like they used to uh, because of parental fears actually do not develop and mature and become resilient. They don't develop grit. They don't develop any kind of toughness. And so, of course, they're vulnerable. Many parents today are in bondage to a kind of fear. And so their kids grow up to be fragile. They then go off to college and they've lived this bubble wrapped life, this bubble wrapped existence, and so they go off to college, and all of a sudden now, it's not just about physical safety, it's about emotional safety, feeling safe, and ideas I don't like scare me, and so I need safe spaces and trigger warnings now on the college campus so I will feel safe. And what you see is there's a kind of helping that actually hurts. There's a kind of obsession with safety that's actually dangerous. Safetyism backfires. Listen to what hate has to say. Let me just read you a few quotations here. There's an old saying, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. But these days we seem to be doing precisely the opposite. We're trying to clear away anything that might upset children. If we protect children from various classes of potentially upsetting experiences, we make it far more likely that those children will be unable to cope with such events when they leave our protective umbrella. The modern obsession with protecting young people from feeling unsafe is, we believe, one of several causes of the rapid rise in rates of adolescent depression and anxiety. We believe that efforts to protect children from environmental hazards and vehicular accidents have been good for children. But efforts to protect kids from risk by preventing them from gaining experience, such as walking to school, climbing a tree, or using sharp scissors, are different. Such protections come with costs, as many kids miss out on opportunities to learn skills, independence, and risk assessment. The problem with this everything-is-dangerous outlook is that overprotectiveness is a danger in and of itself. Parents are going to ludicrous lengths to take the bumps out of life for their children. However, parental hyper-concern has the net effect of making kids more fragile. Safety is good. Safetyism is not. And where does this safetyism come from? Well, I think this kind of fear is ultimately driven by the very bondage that we have here in Hebrews chapter 2, a bondage to the fear of death. Satan wants us to worship the goddess of safety because in that way, that kind of fear, he can use that kind of fear to hold us in bondage. Let me give you another example of this. It's a very simple example, but I think it also gets at the same kind of problem we see in our culture, uh, this, this obsession with safety. Have you noticed how that, that phrase, be safe, 
has become a kind of catchphrase. So when two friends depart, if, if friends even get together these days, when two friends depart, they'll say to one another, be safe or be careful. I've heard others say it. I'm guessing I probably said it myself, <laughs> uh, which I'm not proud of, but that, that's kind of how we depart from one another now. Nobody ever says, be bold or be strong. You know, the kind of exhortations Paul gives in his letter, Paul never tells Christians, writing to Christians, he never says, be safe. He says, be courageous. He says, be strong. He never says, be safe. He never says, be careful. And I think the fact that that's become something of a catchphrase in our culture tells you we are more concerned with safety than doing what is right. We are more concerned with being careful than being bold. And this is a sure sign of a society that fears death and doesn't know what to do with that fear. It's a sure sign of a society that fears death, that is obsessed with its own safety and comfort, that is more obsessed with safety and comfort than faithfulness and righteousness. It is the cult of safety at work. It is the worship of the goddess safety. We should remember the wise words of Gandalf to Frodo as he was leaving home. It's a dangerous business going out your front door. And it is, and there's nothing that can be done about that. Life is never going to be safe. Life can't always be safe. There are always going to be dangers. Life is not meant to be safe. Especially for Christians, we have to understand. Our lives are not given to us so that we can keep them safe all the time, no matter what. Sure, a, a ship would be safest in the harbor, but that's not what ships are for. It's dangerous for a ship to go sail the ocean, but that's what the ship is made for. You know, it used to be instead of people saying, be safe, when they would depart, they would say, God speed, or God be with you. Because they understood life is full of danger. Living faithfully is full of danger. And if God is with you, he's going to call you to do things that might be difficult, that might be dangerous. You want God's presence with you. Not so you can back down from that danger, but so you can face it. The world's a dangerous place. Everything is dangerous. So what? So what? We don't fear death. We don't live in bondage to the fear of death. You know, not even Adam and Eve before the fall lived in a completely safe world. God told Adam to guard the garden. Why did he need to guard it? Because there was going to be an intruder, a deadly enemy, even in this unfallen garden, this paradise. Not even the Garden of Eden was perfectly safe. Don't worship the idol of safety. The irony in all this, of course, is that we are actually far safer than any previous generation in all of human history. And yet we still don't feel safe enough. We're safer than any generation in human history, and yet we are more mentally and emotionally vulnerable, more, more mentally and emotionally fragile. As Christians, we must train ourselves to live fearlessly to not let bondage to fear entangle us. Our culture trains us to live in constant fear, to be constantly paranoid who or what's out to get us, uh, to be constantly suspicious, constantly anxious. That is bondage to fear. Let me take the next step in working this out. When you are set free from bondage to the fear of death, you not only look at the future differently because you know a glorious resurrection, conformity to Christ's own bodily resurrection, that's your future destiny, but you're also set free to live in the present in a different kind of way. You are set free in the present 
from a kind of living death that so many people endure. For so many people, life is a kind of living death. They live without really living. They can't really be present and enjoy things because their fears are constantly overwhelming them. They can't enjoy the present moment, God's gifts in the present moment, because their fears rule them. Our culture is a culture of fear. We are a fearful, fear-filled culture. We are faced with what you might call the safety industrial complex. And Matthew Crawford has raised the question, he says, you know, how safe is safe enough? It seems the safer we become, the more intolerable any remaining risk is. We're this safe, but we could make it a little more safe. And this has got horrific consequences for us. This is how Edward Freeman puts it. Edwin Friedman, he says, this focus on safety has become so omnipresent in our chronically anxious civilization that there is real danger. We will come to believe that safety is the most important value in life. If a society is to evolve or if leaders are to arise, then safety can never be allowed to become more important than adventure. We are on our way to becoming a nation of skimmers, living off the risks of previous generations and constantly taking from the top without adding significantly to its essence. Everything we enjoy as part of our advanced civilization, including the discovery, exploration, and development of our country came about because previous generations made adventure more important than safety. And we might ask, how do they do that? Well, I can tell you one aspect of it is they were not held in bondage to the fear of death. And of course, in our day, safety has been politicized. And so there is now an army of well-meaning but misguided busybody bureaucrats who would love to dictate for each and every one of us how we can maximize safety in every area of life. And of course, Ben Franklin and, and, and many throughout American history have seen this coming and, and have made the point, those who trade liberty to purchase safety are ultimately going to lose both. And unless we're able to overcome this bondage to the fear of death, that is where we are headed. If safety continually requires us to give up the most valuable aspects of our lives, what exactly are we trying to preserve with all this safety? If this obsession with safety takes away so many of the things that makes life worth living, then what's the point of it? What are we trying to preserve? Now understand, freedom from this bondage to the fear of death, it not only allows us to face death in a different kind of way, it not only allows us to live our lives in a different kind of way, free from this bondage, but it also transforms the way we face suffering. It transforms the way we view whatever suffering God does call us to endure. Just as fear of death leads people to maximize safety, so it leads people to minimize suffering. But when we seek to minimize suffering, what that does, it actually leaves us unprepared when the inevitable suffering does arrive. And you can see this in all kinds of ways. Here's one example of that. This is from the medical field. This is Paul Brand an orthopedic surgeon who spent the first part of his medical career in India and then the last part of his career in the U.S. So he'd been in two very different cultures. And listen to what he says, this transition from India to the U.S. He says, in the United States, I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. 
Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. So in India, where there was more suffering, patients were actually better prepared to deal with it. In the U.S., where there was less suffering, patients were more traumatized by whatever they did endure. Well, what does that tell you? We're not equipped to suffer well because we think we should be able to live suffering-free, pain-free lives. But we need to understand that line, you shall not suffer, that is just a variation of the serpent's lie, you shall not die. The Satan's lie in the garden was you shall not die, but that could just as easily have been you shall not suffer. It is a lie of the serpent. When we suffer, we want to ask, why me? Why me? Why am I suffering? Why me? But maybe it would be better to ask, why not me? Why should anyone think I'm going to be exempt from all of this pain and hardship? Or maybe even better, we should look at Jesus hanging on the cross and ask, why you? He's the only one who did not deserve to suffer. He's the only one with no sin of his own for which he ought to suffer. And yet he suffers infinitely more than any of his people ever will. Why you? Why does Jesus suffer? Well, because he suffered for us and because he rose again after his suffering, after his death on the cross, we know the suffering we have to endure will not have the last word. Death does not have the last word. Suffering does not have the last word. We know whatever suffering God calls us to is bearable because it is brief and fleeting compared to the eternal glory that awaits us. How then should people live when they are assured of ultimate victory over death? If you are assured of ultimate victory over death, how then should you live? But we should live without fear because we live with this firm and certain hope. And as we remain faithful in the midst of suffering, we need to understand what God is doing, what God is doing in our lives and through our lives as we remain faithful in the midst of our suffering. As we remain faithful in the midst of whatever suffering God calls us to, we are building upon and extending the victory that Christ has already won for us. He won the decisive victory, but we build upon that victory. And one of the ways we build upon that victory and implement that victory is by remaining faithful in times of great suffering. Think of your suffering this way. Yes, God uses your pain to strengthen you. There's no question. Suffering strengthens us. It matures us. There's no question. But he also uses our suffering to defeat the enemy. When you are faithful in suffering, you send Satan a message. And you say to Satan, you cannot use the fear of death to control me or manipulate me. And so think about Job. Think about the book of Job. Job is inflicted with this horrific suffering. Everything is taken from him. You cannot imagine really more suffering than Job undergoes. And we can talk about how that suffering transforms Job. Certainly Job is, 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 is glorified. He's matured. He's strengthened by the time you get to the end of the book. But it's not just that. Satan's making all kinds of accusations at the start of the book. At the end of the book, after Job has suffered faithfully, Satan has been silenced. Satan can no longer act as a prosecutor or an accuser against Job. The faithful suffering of Job has silenced the satanic accusations. 
And so it is with us. When we suffer faithful, yes, God's doing something in you, but he's also doing something through you. God is strengthening you and maturing you, but God is also overthrowing the kingdom of the evil one. Think of yourself as a soldier dropped down onto the battlefield. And yes, soldiers are strengthened and matured on the battlefield. Every soldier who goes to war will tell you that. How the experience has transformed him. And your suffering, if you suffer faithfully, it will transform you. But the point of the soldier on the battlefield is not just to become a better man. It's to defeat the enemy. And so it is through our suffering. God uses our suffering to further Satan's downfall. Your faithfulness in your suffering makes you a participant in Christ's victorious warfare over the devil. You become a champion yourself. You become victorious yourself in Christ and with Christ as you fellowship in your sufferings. That's what your sufferings really are, a sharing in his suffering and therefore a means to sharing in his victory. When you look across the history of the church, tyrants and persecutors of the church have always tried to use the same satanic strategy that you see here in Hebrews chapter 2. They have tried to use the fear of death as a tool of manipulation to get Christians to compromise and to cave. But when Christians are fearless in the face of death, the tyrant's power is broken. This is why Christians throughout history have caused all kinds of trouble for tyrants. You know, we're those pesky troublemakers who just won't go away because those old tricks don't work on us. We don't fall for it. Christian martyrs have always confounded their persecutors. The martyr looks weak when he is thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, or he looks weak when he is tied to the stake for burning. But there is an incredible power in the blood of the martyrs, a power no tyrant can stop. And so as Tertullian said, mow us down, you know, taunting the, the, the emperor, persecuting Christians, mow us down, we're like grass, we'll just grow back. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. John Calvin had a seminary in Geneva. And in the mid-1500s, they trained missionaries, many of whom went back to Calvin's homeland of France to preach the true and authentic gospel. And they knew they would be persecuted. It was illegal to be Protestant in France. The average life expectancy for the missionaries that went out from Geneva Divinity School was six months. I wonder how many young men today would sign up for a seminary education if the average life expectancy of a graduate was six Months. And we might ask, why did these men do it? They did it because they did not fear suffering. They did not fear death. They signed up for the job because they valued faithfulness over safety. They valued the mission over their own comfort. That's how they lived their lives. They were willing to die because even in death, they knew they would be victorious. In the 18th and 19th centuries, when Christian missionaries would go to Africa, they would pack their belongings not in suitcases, but in coffins. Even for their children, they would do this because they knew they were likely to die. 
So a modern person, person would ask, well, why did they do it? Why did they send themselves to a certain death? Well, they did it because they did not fear death. They lived for a greater cause. They had a greater hope. They weren't in bondage to the fear of death so they could go to places on the face of the earth that had never heard the gospel and proclaimed Christ and planted the flag of the gospel there. And it was all worth it no matter what suffering they endured. When you are not in bondage to death, you can live free and you can be faithful no matter what. As Martin Luther put in his great hymn, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. This is what it means to live in Christ, in the hope of the resurrection, free from the fear of death, full of confidence in the victory Christ has won. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.